Welcome. Thank you for joining us here on the Construction Leaders Podcast presented by CMA, where each episode will provide interviews with diverse perspectives, as well as trends that are affecting the construction and project management industry and beyond. On behalf of CMA, I'm your host, Nick Soto, alongside my colleague, Carly Trout. In 1989, three individuals came together to form a company. The founders of the company were Frank McDonough, Charlie Bulliard, and Blake Peck three engineers who shared a vision of building a professional construction management consulting company. Today, this company is known as MVP. Over the years, MVP, their client base, and their resources have steadily grown, but their commitment to their core values has remained the same. Now, we've talked a lot about things like workforce, the future of the profession, best practices, and construction business in general. Well, today, we're going to take another perspective of the construction business, talk about something that a lot of us have had to deal with as professionals. That's when a company gets taken over by a new set of leaders and what happens when the founders of the company decide to retire or step away from the business. We've invited the new MVP president and CEO, Chris Payne, and chief operating officer, John McKay, to talk with us about impacts of second generation leadership transition. Welcome to this show, Chris and John. Chris, can you give us a brief summary or history about MVP with regards to the ownership and its inception? Sure. First of all, thanks for having us today, and we appreciate this opportunity to talk about the story. Uh, John and I have both been with the firm for better part of three decades or more, so uh, we've certainly lived the history. As you mentioned, MVP's grown over the years from the three, really about four or five people initially up to... Uh, over 300 today. And we've continued to provide services primarily uh, in construction management as an owner advisor. And when the firm started, it was the three owners, Frank, Charlie, and Blake had started, had emerged from another company that didn't have a well-defined transition plan. Uh, So they formed MVP and grew from there. Uh, They always told us that they they formed a company that they would want to work for if they were an employee going forward. And over the 30 so years, uh, I think they succeeded very well. And initially, uh, the three shareholders were the three named partners, like a lot of of companies of its type. And uh, and then after Frank retired in 2008, Charlie and Blake each owned equal shares in the firm and combined to hold a very large proportion of the ownership. So over time, uh, other shareholders were added along. And in that initial stage, when Charlie Blake took over, there were about 18 other shareholders. And then after that, the 18 shareholders that initially came along were granted shares, which is something unusual about our history. Most firms, new shareholders are asked to buy in in some way, take a home equity loan, or, or maybe there's a bonus program that helps fund that. Uh, In our case, uh, they wanted to not create any direct financial hardship to the newer shareholders. So the shares were simply granted directly out of the equity of the company. Following up on that, and and yes, thank you, Nick, for having us here today. After Frank's shares were redeemed in 2008, a plan which had been set in place prior to that was to have the, the smaller interest owners that were holding shares when Frank redeemed to continue to grow in their ownership interest and to at some point in the future, target a, an exit for Charlie and Blake. 
And that actually happened at near the end of 2020. At that time, MVP had over 40 shareholders and no single shareholder had more than a single percentage digit ownership in the firm. Right now we have 10 principals, uh, what we call principals in the firm who hold about 70% of the firm. And currently we have 42 other shareholders that have smaller percentages. So for the most recent ownership transition, can you just go through and tell us uh, the basic process that you went through? I think that's a great question. And I think that's a challenge that initially faces many firms. One of the processes was, first of all, determine the interest of the ownership team, the future ownership team, who in the company would be interested in owning the firm. Charlie and Blake were very committed early on and had in mind a clear vision of having the firm continue on to be owned by the team members who had been with the firm that long. And so their objective was not to conduct an outside sale, uh, but rather to have the firm continue on. And with that in mind, therefore, it was, it was up to John and me and others to determine who's going to be here and who wanted to be here. So that was the very first part of the step. The second part of the step was to basically set the parameters around the deal, which obviously becomes, we are aware, a stumbling block for many firms. Uh, but we made plans long in advance based around an estimated valuation of the firm at the target date several years out and, and work to that end. And then the third major part of the process was to begin to structure our leadership team for the future. So over time, we evolved the roles within the executive suite. Uh, Charlie and Blake took on different roles. Uh, when we, this process started, Charlie was operating as CEO and Blake as COO. Charlie was also the chairman of the board of directors. Uh, and over time, each position evolved. Charlie eventually stepped away from the direct executive leadership, but retained his role as chair. Uh, Blake assumed the CEO role, and I became involved as first as an executive VP and then the COO. And then John took on additional responsibilities, as well as others in our leadership team as we prepared for the transition. So I find this very interesting because, you know, in the construction industry, we see a lot of larger organizations eating these smaller organizations and becoming large conglomerate type of uh, construction businesses. So having been employees of MVP, we know that there's a lot of challenges when founders step away and things like that occur. So what kind of challenges, John, did you guys see when taking over as employees of MVP to now being owners of MVP? I think because it was so well planned and so uh, such a long transition out, I'd back up even before before the switch of the ownership when we redeemed Charlie and Blake's shares. There's so much as employees of a firm that you don't realize that it takes just to run the company. There's so many behind the scenes operations that have to occur that the normal team member at MVP doesn't see but are so vital to the company moving forward successfully to navigate the corporate world. And I think because we were able to step up in the leadership role, and you really need to make sure you can separate leadership and ownership in a firm. And we fill both positions. All of the shareholders with MVP 
are employees of the firm. And growing in that leadership role and continuing to contribute to the growth of the company through our management of the firm while still performing work for client, it's a, it's a unique mix. And can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of working through an agreement and whether that was a difficult process? Chris, do you want to take that one? I'd say... In general, it was an easy process because of the nature of having worked together for so long, of having the degree of trust that we did, and, and it, with everyone working toward the same objective of the firm being handed off and carried on by those of us who'd been in it for so long. That being said, it was certainly an interesting dynamic when you go from working with, you know, all together and now immediately the departing principles by the very nature have a little different set of objectives. Obviously, uh, any principal selling a firm is looking to you know, obtain some equity out of that and, and ensure for their retirement and you know have a, have a pretty distinct image of what that looks like. For those of us on the other side, we're wanting to make sure that we're able to carry on and work effectively. Uh, so obviously getting those expectations aligned are different. And I think for the role that we were in, obviously we're negotiating with the people who've been essentially our bosses for so long. So, uh, and now all of a sudden we're more representing the firm than necessarily they are. There's a kind of an odd dynamic there. And certainly uh, at some point, and, and we counted this story internally when Frank McDonough left the firm, Charlie and Blake distinctly remembered our firm's outside counsel advising Frank, okay, you know, the lawyer is now representing the firm. Frank's not part of the firm anymore. And so that was just an, an interesting distinction. And certainly I think for the, the departing principles, it's hard because their identity and self-image have been so defined and wrapped up inside the identity of the firm. So I think separating those things and then uh, trying not to let emotions, you know, get get in the way of. At heart, you're trying to come up with a business deal, but you're also trying to deal with the personal elements of it, and there can be some emotions and so forth tied to that. I can only imagine that. And now history shows us that most closely held firms don't survive through the first, let alone the second major transition. So, John, what do you think MVP has done to set itself up to make it through the redemption of all the founding partners? As Chris mentioned earlier, I think the fact that MVP was formed out of a prior company that, that didn't have a good ownership transition, it was really part of the firm's DNA from the beginning to be constantly looking forward for who are the next owners of the firm going to be and to make sure that those people are, are developed as not only team members or employees, but also developing early on their ability to become owners. The ownership has been planned for the firm to redeem the interests of each owner throughout each of those stages that we went through earlier. And a big part of that was using the firm's earnings to fund investment vehicles to make sure that their funds were available to redeem the stock back into the company rather than having the next group of owners go out and take out mortgages and, and whatnot to complete that transaction. And the founders and the current senior owners all having the commitment to not just survive, but thrive as a closely held company, private private firm. That's in the DNA. And as long as Chris and I are here, are going to remain in the firm's DNA. With that being said, even though we have 
planned for this for so long and planned around what the founding principles bad experience was in the past. I think there was still some hesitation and trepidation, certainly in even the communication of who would be there. One of the key events in our process, it was kind of funny, is that we had we were in the process and have had a habit of doing an annual strategic planning summit. And at the particular time when we really got this deal and, and got the whole transition plan really moving, one of the things that we came to find out is that Charlie and Blake themselves were a little hesitant, a little unclear to really point blank ask a number of us the question of would we still want to be around and would we still want to take on the firm? And so our facilitator, uh, Rick Allman, had a, had a good idea at the strategic planning, said, Blake and Charlie, I'm going to get you out of the room and you need to go sit off to the side and talk about something else. And we're going to run a little experiment. And so Rick came into the room with probably uh, 15 or so of us who were in various management and leadership positions and said, OK, here's the situation. Charlie and Blake are gone in a terrible accident. There's, there's, you know, they met their demise essentially over the weekend. I mean, obviously we knew this was. That, that's just pretty doom them. and gloom. <laughs> we had just seen them at breakfast. So we knew, but, but he said, here's the scenario we're running. They're gone. It's Monday morning, go. And over the course of two hours, we had figured out essentially the structure of, you know, what we would do to communicate to clients, what we would do to secure finances, how we would start to run the firm on a day-to-day -day basis. And we basically mapped it out and learned through that exercise that, well, we we would go along, obviously, that would be a devastating loss and difficult emotional situation. But in terms of the framework of the company, we would survive and we would be able to organize ourselves pretty readily. So I think that was a breakthrough moment. And not only for us as the incoming leadership team, but also for Charlie and Blake to realize that, you know, the question they didn't know quite how to ask <laughs> was asked and we worked through the exercise pretty well. Yeah, Nick, it was pretty doom and gloom, but fortunately we, like Chris said, we'd seen him at breakfast, but it wasn't until afterwards that it was explained why that exercise was done. And it really bore out of the, the questions that Charlie and Blake had of does this next group really want to step up and, and take charge, grab the bull by the horns and, and lead the company, which many of us who were looking at it and saying, oh, my, my goodness, we've been here for 20 plus years. If you if there isn't, if you don't recognize that we, we really are ready and want to do this, our apologies, but that, that's why we're here. And the commitment, the senior leadership in the firm, I think the average tenure now, Chris is up over 20 years, I believe. Oh, that's amazing. Now, John, you had mentioned a couple of times the DNA of the organization. Can you tell us a little bit more about the firm's core values and their DNA? And has it changed over time throughout the two significant ownership transfers? Sure. No, I don't think the firm's DNA has changed. Our values have remained the same. The core values that the, the firm was founded on, the core principles, what we call them, that we have values that are published out on the website, but the core principles at the time were quality, growth, and profitability. And throughout even our current values that are published, it's still there. So the firm's DNA hasn't changed over the, very, the, the initial ownership transition from Frank to Charlie and Blake as majority owners, nor from Charlie and Blake to us. 
the the leadership style has changed i believe at each change from from frank as ceo and charlie as coo to charlie as ceo chris went through that with charlie and blake but the values haven't changed and i think that has to do with the fact that everybody has been with the firm and they're not just the firm's values they're also all of our own personal values let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor the construction manager certification institute Today's ANSI-accredited Certified Construction Manager brings professionalism to the project and provides leadership by unifying architects, general contractors, engineers, and facility managers to successfully complete the project. The CCM is familiar with the latest techniques and technologies of construction, from prefabrication to building information modeling. He or she thoroughly understands sustainable design and construction, how projects are financed, and how risks can be minimized and effectively shared. The Certified Construction Manager is a communicator, a facilitator, a problem solver, a professional leader. Certified Construction Managers have the proven knowledge and experience to deliver all these values for every project. Make the CCM part of your strategy for success. For more information on the Certified Construction Manager, please visit cmcertification.org. So I asked earlier about, you know, how MVP was able to avoid being gobbled up by some of these larger firms. What was something else that MVP had to consider? And did you consider any other structure changes such as like ESOPs? Well, we we had looked at those other mechanisms over the years. And I think there are various reasons why ESOPs did not seem attractive to our firm uh, principally the the rigorous uh, regulatory process that you have to follow and so forth. I think our ownership team has been much more comfortable staking out, you know, designing it exactly as we wish. Uh, yeah, I think first of all, we we faced the predicament off the bat that many firms face. Uh, really, it, I think applies to any firm that's in in the situation with the made the owner founders trying to leave. Uh, and once, you know, how do they retire? How do they get equity out of the company without a major disruption to the company? When the major buyers you're looking for are the current employees, obviously, who aren't necessarily you know, independently wealthy. So obviously, selling the firm was an option that, you know, I think was on the table at, at different times. And I think Charlie and Blake certainly looked into a number of inquiries. A firm of our profile, we get a lot of interest from outside potential buyers. That is certainly one issue. Uh, but again, I think based on the things we've discussed, there was always a, a strong sentiment and belief that, that we could continue to, to own the firm with the team that we had. So outside sale was briefly considered. I think the mechanism by which we affected the deal was a little bit unusual. Uh, basically trying to fund it in advance so that the firm was not left with a lot of debt. And that was something we had some outside advisory help in terms of planning well in advance to uh, set aside some money in, in life insurance vehicles that would create a, a funding mechanism once the sale was actually finalized. Now, looking back, Chris, we know that hindsight is twenty twenty. Is there anything um, looking back that you might have done differently or changed throughout the whole process? I don't think there was anything we would do differently per se. One thing that happened, we actually beat our target date. So uh, we had set a 
date out well in advance, some seven years in advance. So because of our combination of market forces, our success as a company, and basically working through the dynamics of the pandemic, um, we were actually able to complete the transition about 15 months, 14 months earlier than planned. But in terms of things that we would have done differently, I think there's some things that we did unusual that wouldn't necessarily work for other firms. Uh, setting a target valuation seven or eight years in advance and basing the whole parameter of the deal around that is a little bit unusual in terms of how we understand most companies do this. Fortunately, we were able to meet the business projections that went into that target valuation. I think certainly, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily doing it differently, but certainly maintaining the communication is so crucial. I think even as much as we communicated with the other shareholders, communicated directly back and forth with Charlie and Blake, had other outside advisors, I think even as well as that worked, there's always room where we could have had even better and more open communication. And sometimes just the nature of what you're doing, there's a hesitancy to fully communicate sometimes because there's there's a risk that somebody interprets something the wrong way or, or you know takes a message inappropriately. I think that's a leads into my question. I want to kind of hear from both of you on. So John, we'll start with you on this one. Uh, and that's how you maintain MVP's culture throughout this transition and morphed it into what you kind of wanted to be. You've had to deal with a lot and I know you have offices around the country. So how were you able to trickle this message that you guys want as new leadership to the rest of your teams? Communication. Obviously communication is key. We have meetings company-wide. One thing we do every year is we bring the entire team together as best we can, those that can make it to what we call our annual business meeting and also bring the spouses with them. And that is to us a key vital element of the MVP culture, because when you get every 300 person firm with offices spread from New York down to Tampa, out to Nashville and Ohio, getting everybody together under one roof. And we spend the weekend talking about the business plan and what happened last year, what's gonna happen in the future and setting that vision up along with the camaraderie that gets built. And it's always focused around a theme and those themes revolve around the values of MVP. Chris, what are your thoughts? I would echo John. There's so many elements of of running a business that are intrinsically challenging. And every day you're faced with, with some new dynamics, you're dealing with your team, you're dealing with clients, you're dealing with external issues, uh, and certainly construction management is complex enough as it is, and you start to layer on the dynamics of changing uh, a business. This is not something that any of us go through on a day-to-day basis. Uh, We're not in that business. We're not in the mergers and acquisitions business fundamentally or, or the ownership transition business. So the, the nature of going through it, recognizing it is a different experience. It, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of its own uh, focus, uh, but just kind of remaining true to you know, what, your, what your real purpose is as a company and, and how you want to work together as a group, you help with that whole process. 
So this is obviously a success story that you all are sharing. And, and like you said, Chris, you were able to even complete the transition ahead of schedule. So for firms that might be facing pending retirement of the owners, what advice would you all give to those firms? John, do you want to start? Sure. I'll start. And Chris, if, I, if there's something that might get missed that you think of, please jump in. The key is start early. I don't think 10 years early is too soon to start planning these things out, particularly with cycles that might run in a business of two to four years. Another key component would be getting good advice. Externally, Chris referenced that we had advisors from legal. We had a firm come in and help us with planning out this target that we were setting. And, and that, that will not be the, the future of MVP of setting future value targets for the firm because it's going to be more of kind of as the firm's value uh, goes forward. And that needed to be done because of the majority share stakes that Charlie and Blake held. So having that and getting commitment and buy-in from everybody to work towards that goal, not only Charlie and Blake, but the, us leaders to, to drive to that point. Yeah, I think something else that we worked on very hard and John mentioned you know, trying to start 10 years out aligning the purposes of everyone involved. Obviously, the departing owners uh, are looking for a degree of financial security and assurance that they can retire uh, and some sense of where the firm is going after they leave. Uh, those that are taking on want to make sure that as a team, they can succeed and have their finances not put at risk from the takeover. Uh, I think one of the things that I know we somewhat face and other owners face throughout the industry is the dynamics in today's workforce, uh, making sure that you have interested people in their early and mid part of their careers that are interested in owning a company. Obviously, we live in a world where people are much more comfortable changing companies or even changing careers multiple times, even in a decade. So the idea of saying you're going to own this venture and li live in it and operate within it for 10, 15, 20 years is more of a, a challenge than perhaps it used to be. So I think that's something that we, we would suggest that polling uh, the team to find out if they are interested in ownership and trying to uh, mold those team members early on if, if that's their interest. And I know for a lot of firms currently, that interest maybe isn't there and they're looking to other ownership structures. That's something we, we're certainly exploring as we now think ahead to our next ownership transition when we leave and, and the group of the 10 principles that we currently have eventually evolve out of the firm. And I jump back in for a second there. I think Thinking back on it as we were going through that process for seven, eight years, formally, formalized process with Charlie and, and Blake, we were already, Chris and I and others in the current senior owner group, we were looking behind us at who do we need. At the same time, you're trying to transition out the existing owners for you to move up. We're also looking behind us and making sure that we're developing the next owners to fill the seats that we were sitting in as, as we're moving up. So it's, that is one piece that can get overlooked if, if you're not careful. Yeah. One thing we, uh, we've heard a few times now through this podcast series is to get that advice that you mentioned earlier, uh, John, uh, when we talked to Paul Foster and Ann Cotter, who have their own firms as well. 
And earlier in episode two and three, we got to talk to Cody from MVP. And if he's your future, you guys are in good hands. So I I think that you guys are doing yourself a good service here to look at succession planning already. And I think that's wise. Chris, John, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you for spending some time with us today. It sounds like MVP is poised to continue the growth that they've had and the successes that they've had. And with you both leading the way, I think that's going to continue. So that's great to hear. For more information on MVP, you can visit www.mbpce.com. Coming up on episode nine, we sit down to discuss the training and materials available to implement engineering and computer science across school districts and to transform the teacher's role in the classroom to make sure that STEM and construction are at the forefront for all students. That will definitely be of interest to shaping the future of the workforce for this profession. Make sure you download and subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on social media at CMA underscore HQ. On behalf of CMA, I'm Nick Soto with Carly Trout. Thank you for listening.